Hear this, the Word of God, as delivered to us through His faithful servant, Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ, the word of God. All right. When Sam got up here a moment ago, he began with a phrase that I hear a lot now. He said, good morning, church. I like that. I like the way that feels. I like the way that sounds. I want to build on that a little bit. What I want to say to you this morning is, I love you, church. I'm a church guy. I grew up in church. Church gave me my faith. And uh, I can't imagine what I would do without the relationships, the mothers, the fathers, the grandmothers, the grandfathers, the brothers, the sisters, the sons, the daughters, and now the grandsons and the granddaughters uh, that are all in the faith. That's what church is to me. Now, this passage that we just read out of Matthew is kind of the first passage that we come to in the Bible that tells us how important church was to Jesus, how it fit into his mission. So I want to spend a little bit of time with this and let it sink in on us what it is that Jesus thinks of his church. The story happens, we can pull up a picture here, and maybe they'll put the little, help me, help me. There we go, thank you story of Jesus traveling with his uh, disciples or his 12 apostles up in Caesarea Philippi. And that's about as far north as far as we know that Jesus ever traveled in his day. Up out of the safe region or the region of Galilee, even north of that into Caesarea Philippi. And as they're walking along, he turns to his friends and he says, well, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And they gave him some answers of names that they had heard people tossing about, trying to figure out who this Jesus was. They said, well, some think you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Others think you're Elijah. Some think that you're Jeremiah. Some just feel like you're one of the prophets. And Jesus turns to them and says, but I'm interested in you. Who do you say that I am? And Peter I believe, speaking for all of the disciples, said, you are the Messiah, 
the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at that great confession, Jesus turns to him and pronounces a blessing upon him. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's interesting because Jonah probably was not Simon's father's name. He's probably referring there to the prophet Jonah. You remember the prophet Jonah that got swallowed up by the fish and all of that and that whole story? You know, the prophet Jonah became the first real symbol of Christianity. We talked about this a year or so ago. Before they started drawing the ichthus, the fish, before Christians started wearing the cross, on Christian tombs they would inscribe a picture of Jonah in the belly of the well and being then spewed up. I guess that's a good word, isn't it? Better than some others. Onto the ground. (laughs) And that's the prophet that Jesus did identify with, the resurrection. And that became the the prophet of the symbol of Jesus. He says, you are a son of Jonah. And he said, flesh and blood has not revealed to you who I am, but it comes from my Father. Now, all that means I don't know, but I do know that we can go back a couple of chapters where Jesus comes to his disciples who are riding in a boat in the middle of a storm, and he comes to them by walking on the water. Remember that story? And who is it that cries out, I want to walk too, I want to walk too? Peter. And Peter jumps out of the boat and takes a couple of steps, and then he starts looking around thinking, what am I doing? And begins to sink. And Jesus reaches down and pulls him up, takes him to the boat, and as soon as they get in the boat, the storm stops, and it says all of the disciples bowed down and worshiped Jesus and said, you truly are the Son of God. So they have come to know through their interaction with God and their interactions with Jesus that this is who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And when Peter makes that confession, Jesus turns to him and says, and you're Peter. Now, that's interesting, too, because you know how many people that were in the first grade with Peter whose name was Peter? None. There was nobody else named Peter. That was not a name. It was a word that means rock. Jesus made that up and stuck it on Simon and said, I'm going to call you rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Wow. There is so much going on there. One of the first things that tells me is that a primary mission of Jesus not an afterthought, not just sort of over there in the, the wings, you know, but one of the primary purposes of Jesus was to build his church. Now, not to build a building like we're sitting in now, not a physical structure made out of brick or stone or mortar, but rather a structure built up of people, of living rocks, living stones. Now, this saying really made an impression on Peter. I know it did, because decades later, he was writing a letter to some friends of his, 
who are also Christians and encouraging them in the midst of great persecution that they were, they were suffering. And listen to one thing he says. He says, come to Jesus, a living stone. And though he was rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And you, you, like living stones, be, let yourselves be built up into a spiritual house. Where was Peter's mind when he was saying that? Oh, he was back in Caesarea Philippi, wasn't he? He was back there at the time where Jesus had said, you're a rock, Peter, and on rocks like you, I am going to build my church. Now, we know that Peter was speaking for all the disciples, and we know that Jesus considered all his disciples right there to be that first layer of rocks in his church, because later on, the apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, God's house is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. So this is what he is saying to them. He says, you guys are going to be that first layer of rocks in this great structure that I'm going to build. And I'm going to build this thing throughout the rest of history, throughout the rest of time itself. He says, even the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Nothing will ever destroy my church. It is going to last from now on. We know that that's what he was meaning when he said that the gates of Hades, Hades is not just a nice word for hell. It doesn't mean the same thing as hell. It means death itself, that great enemy, nothing that comes along, no other ideology, no attacks of evil, no other worldviews, no other religions, not even when the church itself seems to get lost and wander around. That won't stop it. Not even our current attacks of irrelevancy that, well, the church is just old and passe. It's just gone. Jesus says it will last forever because upon the rock of these faithful disciples, I will start building my church. Because the church has to do with the kingdom of God that God has established throughout all the universe. He goes on to tell Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom because whatever you go around and whatever you say is binding, you know why you say that? Because God has bound that in heaven itself, in the kingdom. And whenever you say things are no longer necessary and they're loose, that's because God has said that. That the church speaks for the kingdom of God. The church reveals the kingdom of God throughout all of this world. We know that's the case because Paul again, in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, says, Through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety is made known. The church tells it like it is. The church reveals the reality of God. The church reveals what God has done in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. Wow. So to confess faith, as Peter did, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is also to be brought into his great building project 
which he is called the church. I've got just a few minutes left. I want to look at a church built of rocks. I scanned through the net, and that's the only rock church building I could find. But it's okay. It's just an image. But when we think about the church being built up with rocks, we're not thinking of rocks like this. We're thinking of people. And so when we look at the church, if we look at this bottom row of rocks here all the way around, who did Paul and who did Jesus tell us those are? The apostles and the prophets. And then throughout history, we keep having other rocks added on top and on top and on top. Some of those rocks, we know their names. And I wanted to share with you a few rocks that I lean on. People that have been a part of God's church that continue to inform me, to bless me, to hold on to me. Here we go. First one I want to show you is Jerome. You know who Jerome is? Oh, I love Jerome. Jerome lived in the fourth century, a long time ago. Jerome was a fiery young man. It wasn't an argument or a fight that he couldn't find. He just loved it. Another problem with Jerome was he was highly controlled by his hormones, all right, if you get my drift. And, and he really spent a lot of his youth being frustrated with himself that he couldn't control himself. And one thing that he would do, he lived, he had moved to Rome to go to school and gotten in a lot of trouble there. He would go down into the catacombs of Rome Where lay the bones of faithful Christians and martyrs? And he would walk among those bones in those caves in the musty, damp darkness. And he did that to remind himself that he too is mortal, that he too will die, that life isn't all about pleasure, that life is a gift from God to be used well. This is why anytime you see a picture of Jerome, you're going to find a skull in the picture because of that. I don't know that he kept a skull beside him, but it's to remind us that Jerome constantly wanted to be reminded of his mortality, that this life was not going to last here on this earth forever and not to invest himself totally in this life on earth. Well, that's not the reason that I love Jerome, though. (laughs) That's interesting about Jerome. Sorry, I get off on little tangents here. But Jerome, the reason I love him, he was a great scholar and a linguist. He decided that the Bible needed to be in the common language of the people, which in that day was Latin. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, and people didn't speak Hebrew and Greek anymore. And only the priests and the educated folks knew what the Bible said. He said, no, no, no. All people ought to know what the Bible says. So he set out to translate it into Latin. He moved to Bethlehem and lived in some caves right adjacent to the traditional birthplace of Jesus. Those caves are still there. I got to go in them one time. That was one of the greatest thrills of my life was to sit in the caves of Jerome. And there Jerome translated the whole Bible into the language of the people. His translation became the backbone of our English translation. So we are built on Jerome. Whether we knew it or not, he is supporting us. Every time you open your English Bible, say thank you, Jerome, (laughs) that you made this possible. John Chrysostom. Sometimes people ask me, who's your favorite preacher? That's easy. John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom preached for the church in Antioch of Syria. 
preached in the 4th century also. He was a contemporary of Jerome. Chrysostom is not his name. His name is John. He was named John Chrysostom because Chrysostom means the golden tongue. It'd be a name for a movie, wouldn't it? The man with the golden tongue. Yeah. Because people loved his preaching. And we still love his preaching. We still have his sermons, many of them. And his sermons are still read today. His sermons are still plagiarized today because he preached to the heart. He preached a message of grace and healing to people who were hurting and souls that were broken. His preaching set the course for Christian preaching in centuries that have come. We rest upon the stone of John Chrysostom. This is Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, I love Bernard for his devotional writings. If you ever have a chance to pick something up that Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, in fact, you've, you have sung his words. But well, one other thing, he, he wrote, by the way, those of you who like to read all these uh, books about uh, things going on with da Vinci and all that kind of stuff, Bernard of Clairvaux wrote the rules for the Knights Templar. So, but that's not why. I, I like his hymns. Oh, sacred head, now wounded. Can you beat that? Love that song. And it brings a tear to my eye. When we get to the last part of the song, we say, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Bernard's a rock in the church that I grew up in. This is Francis of Assisi. He wasn't a sissy. In fact, he was, Assisi is the name of the town. Uh, he was quite a man. He was a soldier. He was born into a very wealthy merchant family. And yet he lived in a time when the church had kind of wandered off from its real purpose. The church had become an institution of power and wealth. And the church had kind of removed itself from those who were in need. Assisi called him back. He renounced all of his own wealth and he dedicated himself to the poor and to those who were struggling and in need. I love St. Francis of Assisi. He's a rock in the church. This is Teresa of Avila. She lived in Spain. This is not Mother Teresa of more modern time. This is Teresa of Avila. She lived in Spain. She was a mystic, lived in the Middle Ages, and her writings are still uh, present. You soul people, people who, who enjoy the mystical aspect of God. You need to read Teresa of Avila and her friend John of the Cross because they went and explored the very depths and the heart of God. The Interior Castle, The Way to Perfection. These are books that she wrote that are still with us today. And her faith still sustains and informs people so many hundreds of years later. This is Charles Wesley. He had a big brother named John Wesley. People talk about John Wesley. I love Charles Wesley. He was a hymn writer, and through his hymns, his theology that he continues to teach touches our lives. He wrote, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. We sing that every December, don't we? But so many, I think he has more hymns in our current hymnal than any other hymn writer does. Uh, I, I think that's right. Uh, and, and it's great, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And then he talks about how God pardons or how, how he, 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 he breaks the bond of, I'll get it in a minute. Breaks, I have to sing through the song. Da, 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 da. Okay, he breaks the power of canceled sin. 
I tell you what, the first time I sang that, well, I don't know the first time, I probably sang over it several times, but one time I was singing that, I go, wow, that's heavy. That God breaks the power of cancel sin. It dawned on me that so many of the sins in my life that God had forgiven me of, I was still wearing around my neck and dragging them around with me. And it took Charles Wesley to say, Tommy, God's forgiven you of that. Forgive yourself and move on. He's broken that power. I've got to move on. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in Germany in the first part of the 20th century. He was a preacher in the church in Germany whenever Hitler came to power. He was one of the few preachers that stood up to Hitler and said, you're wrong. What you are doing is wrong. So much of the church in Germany acquiesced to Hitler and and bought into all of the, the plans and everything that was going on. Only a few, a handful like Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up and said, no, this is wrong. He had a chance to come live in New York City in 1939 and teach at Union Theological Seminary. He turned it down because he said, I'm needed here. I've got to stay with my people. And he stayed there and he preached and he taught and he worked against Adolf Hitler. He was finally arrested in 1943, put into a concentration camp. And one of the most heartbreaking things is that Hitler had him executed on April the 9th. 1945, two weeks before Berlin fell and Hitler was dead. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book that'll touch your heart. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And right at the beginning of that book, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. My church has a rock in it named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is Martin W. Stone, of all the people in the American Restoration Movement that brought us churches of Christ, Martin W. Stone's my favorite. He's a man of the heart. He was a man of the spirit. He was a man who loved the poor. He was a man who gave churches of Christ their heart for the poor. Got to hurry on. This is T.B. Larimore. T.B. Larimore was the first preacher in this church. And uh, he wasn't well liked uh, throughout the brotherhood because he was considered a little liberal, Because he didn't think that some of the things people were fighting about were worth fighting about. His message was a message of grace. His message was we don't have to agree on every single detail to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to love each other and to work together as a church. I love T.B. Larimore because he planted that spirit into this church. And it's sustained and is here still to this day. This is Edwin and Kathleen Rasko. These are rocks that I only know their name. I've given them some hugs. They have meant so much in my life. I mention them all the time. I'm sorry, I can't help it. They're just so one. Edwin was an elder in the church for decades in East Texas. He taught me so much, but most of all, what he taught me was to love the church. Oh, I love him for that. Kathleen, his wife, she cooked meals, took them to people who were sick, people who were bereaved. That just cook, 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 cook. She finally got to where she couldn't do that anymore. She was confined to her bed. And so she got Edwin to go out and buy her boxes of stationery, and she wrote notes to people. Every afternoon, Edwin went to the post office with a stack of of notes to mail for Kathleen. At her funeral, she died when she was 94 years old. The building was packed out. You don't get the building packed out by for many people who are 94 years old. All their friends are gone, right? Uh Uh-uh, not Kathleen. I asked the people there, how many of you ever received a note from Kathleen? Every hand went up. She was a rock 
in the church. One more I got to show you, Lucille Lindsay. Lucille Lindsay didn't fit into the church that I was a preacher of. You know, the church that I preached at in East Texas was very wealthy. In East Texas, it's very formal. Everybody dressed all the time. That's why I still wear a suit. You know, that's just the way you were. Lucille kind of looked like a bag lady. Uh, she was a, a, an old Cajun woman who uh, had had a terrible marriage. Her husband used to just beat her up all the time. And, and I would spend time with her, and she would minister to me and teach me things about the workings of God that just blew me away. Let me give you one story. One day I knew that, that uh, Lucille, as she was getting older, her health was failing, that she was in the hospital. And I thought, I need to go see Lucille. And I thought, well, I can't today. I've got all these things to do. I'll go see Lucille tomorrow. So I sat down at my desk, got all my stuff out, and I'm working away. And all of a sudden, it just hits me. i got to go see Lucille. So I got up, got my car, drove to the hospital, walked into her room, and the first thing she said to me, well, there you are. And I said, well, it sounds like you were expecting me. And she said, yep, I just told Jesus I needed to talk to you. You, you know that story where uh, uh, Philip is taken away by the Spirit and taken to the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. That's the closest I ever got to that. And it still sends chills down. You know, that woman was a rock in the church. Well, there's so many more that I can name, so many more that you could name. Many of them have sat in this room right here. But I want to tell you one thing. I may not accomplish much in my life. And really, when you start thinking about it, my name will soon become just a name on someone's family tree of people searching on Ancestry.com. People that don't know me, don't really know who I am. But one thing I want to be is a rock in the church of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus set out to do. It was his primary task to build a church. I can't be a foundation stone. The foundation's already been laid. I may not be a stone that holds up the, a threshold or a door. I don't care. You just put me in there. I want to be a rock resting upon these great rocks of the past and right there prepared for the new rocks that come along so that they can rest upon my faith as well. To confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, is to be brought into his great building project, the church. May you be so blessed to be a rock in that eternal church. Let's stand and sing.